Well, we are now into the book of Jonah as we've carried on in our verse-by-verse study through the Minor Prophets. Jonah's a book, of course, we're very, very familiar with. Uh, We know the account, and I use the word account. I don't like the word story, um, because when we talk about Bible stories, it almost relegates it to something that's fiction. It's not true. You know, we have bedtime stories and and so on. But when we're talking about things in the Bible, these are accounts of real things that took place to real people. This is history. So this is the account of Jonah that we're going to look at. As we say, we are very familiar with it. It's one of the popular uh, accounts that are taught to children in Sunday school, and we'll become very, very familiar with those things. And we're going to look through. There may be some surprises in this this morning for us as we go through it. Uh, of course, looking at the chronology of the books of the Bible, all the way through from Genesis through to Revelation, the minor prophets make up the last 12 books of the Old Testament. And again, as we've said many times, minor, not because of lack of importance in any way, but simply because typically the books are shorter than the major prophets. They are, of course, in the Hebrew Tanakh. They're effectively grouped together uh, with all the prophets. Jonah, as far as we know, historically was written somewhere around about 853 to 824 BC, which is interesting because it's before the Assyrian Empire gets to its height. It was already a big player on the world stage, but it wasn't what it would then become. So this is the the early years as they're starting to gain a reputation for cruelty and for might and for strength and so on, that Jonah is in this situation. Now, as we go into this, it's probably worth noting that there are a number of books of the Bible that seem to be hated. Uh, Now, of course, ultimately they're hated by Satan, but we find that a lot of critics of the Bible will single out certain books and they don't like them. And it's interesting when you look at the books. Now, Genesis, of course, has to top that list. Genesis is a book that the critics love to attack uh, without foundation, without warrant, but because they just do not like the fact that it gives us an account of our origins. Of course, people like James Hutton and Lyle and so on, Darwin's um, compatriots, these people didn't like the book of Genesis. And they came, wanted to come up with an alternative view, an alternative solution to how we got here. And that's where these long ages of time came, because they wanted to do away with the idea of a flood and of Moses and those kind of things, and just uh, undermine scripture. And so Genesis is a book that's been attacked. But it's interesting to note that Genesis is the book that first tells us of the incarnation of Christ. It tells us in Genesis 3.15 that the seed of the woman was coming, and that the seed of the woman was going to be the Savior. And so it seems to be a book that is ridiculed and attacked by the critics. But of course, we know that there is strong historical and archaeological evidence to support everything that we read there. The book of Jonah, of course, is what we're looking at now. But the book of Jonah really speaks of the resurrection of Christ. The Daniel, again, the second coming of Christ. And then finally, the book of Revelation, the ultimate reign of Christ. It's interesting that, in a sense, all books of the Bible point to Jesus, but these four particularly are hated by critics. They're attacked and undermined in all sorts of different ways. But we have the incarnation, the resurrection, the second coming, and the ultimate reign of Jesus Christ in these books. Well... The breakdown of the book is quite simple. Chapter 1, we have this reluctant prophet. And we'll speak about why he was reluctant in a while. Then in chapter 2, we have the repentant prophet. 
Chapter 3, we find this revival that occurs in Nineveh, this Assyrian capital city. And then in chapter 4, we have the short-sighted prophet, as some commentators have referred to him as. What's interesting, though, is that there's a number of models in the book of Jonah, and the structure here is indeed itself a model. It's a model of life. It's a model of our lives, because typically we start our lives running from God. We are all born in iniquity. We're all separated from God because of our sin. Ephesians 2 gives us that great, two of the greatest words in the Bible, but God. If it wasn't for God, there would be no solution. But God rescues, redeems us. We who were once aliens, we were cast out, we were separated from God, we were dead in trespasses and sins, we were running from God. But then we come to that place of repentance. And often, like Jonah, it's through a time of trial or difficulty in our life, we evaluate and we realize that we can keep running, but we're not getting anywhere. And so we start running from God, then there's that repentance. And then naturally in our life, it leads to a time of revival, a time of spiritual growth, a time where we start to understand who God is, how great God is, as his Holy Spirit indwells us, and we are truly born again. And then we get to the struggle. Or wouldn't it be lovely if we went straight from revival to heaven? But we don't. We go through the struggle. It's learning to submit to the will of God. And chapter 4 of Jonah is an often kind of misunderstood chapter. It's almost like, well, why is it there? It doesn't seem to fit. It's not a nice end to the story. But it's the truth. It's the reality that we get to that place that we run from God, we repent, we revive, but then the struggle begins. It's like learning to submit to the will of God on a daily basis. And actually, sometimes in the midst of those struggles, we find that we grow the most, we learn the most about God and his nature and his character. But it's learning to submit to his will. It's the the God that says, as Chuck Misley used to say, every day God will ask you the same question. That question is, do you trust me? There are some days that everything's wonderful. The sun's shining in our life and everything's brilliant. And, And Lord, yeah, we trust you. And there's other days when it's just darkness and confusion. And then the question is still asked, do you trust me? And that's the hard time. That's when we have to go, Lord, yeah, we trust you. I don't see the solution. I don't see the way out. But Lord, I trust you. I know you have got this sorted out. Although I don't see it. <clears throat> what he said, written around about 850 BC in that kind of time frame. It's about 150 years before this time, though. Israel had been the number one power in the Middle East, and arguably in the world, because the rest of the world wasn't really uh, where the Middle East was, because obviously that's where, uh, from the Bible, civilization started and grew. And under David and Solomon, Israel had been this incredibly powerful kingdom, so much so that the Queen of Sheba travels up and is absolutely blown away by seeing Solomon and his wealth and his riches and the organization of his government. But then... Around about 991 BC, the kingdom divides into two, the northern and the southern kingdom. Of course, northern being Israel, the southern being Judah. And by the time of Jonah, Assyria was now on the rise as the major world power. In about 100 years from the time of Jonah, Israel would ultimately be defeated by the Assyrians. That's the northern kingdom in 722 BC. We know the history of Israel, of course, starts with Saul. The nation wanted to be like the people around them. 
It's a lesson for us that because we look at the world around us and we think the world sometimes is so cool, so wonderful, so great. We look at the things the world has and we want to be like that. That's what Israel did. They wanted to be like the nations around them and they ended up with Saul as their king. It didn't go well. It wasn't what they thought it was going to be. But then finally David is appointed as king, the one who God had already chosen, the man after God's own heart. And then David's son Solomon. And then the kingdom, as we said, divides into Judah with Rehoboam, Solomon's son, and then Jeroboam taking the northern kingdom. And it's the northern kingdom that goes into captivity under the Assyrians in 722 BC. Looking at it just in terms of the kings of Judah, it's during the reign of Amaziah in the south. Uh, the green kings there, you can see, they're the good kings. The rest of them weren't good. It's sad to see how many of those kings failed. And then when you look at the kings of Israel, there isn't a good king amongst them. Uh, but it's during the reign of Jeroboam II, uh, seemingly is when Jonah has his ministry. Now, most give attention to the fish, of course, in the book of Jonah. It's when you think of Jonah, that's initially the, the thing that kind of strikes you. But really, the most incredible miracle of the book is the repentance of an entire city the size of London. It's like somebody walking up, standing outside the Houses of Parliament and preaching, and the government going, wow. We've, we, we've sinned against God, and the whole nation repents, as a, or the whole, the whole city repents as a result of it. Well, that was basically what happened. By the way, Jonah did not misunderstand God's request. He knew exactly what God was asking of him. He was a patriotic Israelite. He loved his people. He loved Israel. And I genuinely believed he loved the God of Israel as well. He wanted to see Israel's enemies destroyed, much like many of the psalmists who wrote, just crying out to God that God would vindicate them and subdue and put down their enemies. Jonah, no different. He wanted to see the enemies of Israel destroyed. And of course, Jonah feared that sparing Nineveh would be detrimental to Israel, which it was. It proved to be just that, because by Nineveh being spared, they were then able to carry on their rise in power and might and strength and so on. And then subsequently, as I say, a 100 years later or so, they come against Israel and cruelly take the northern kingdom away into captivity. So you kind of start to see that Jonah wasn't just this disobedient individual. He was a person that wanted to see God's will done. You see, God already promised to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, and the subsequent leaders of the nation, Moses and David, you know, that God was going to bless them, that Israel were going to be this wonderful place, that there would be a blessing to the world, that there would be a king one day who would rule from Jerusalem. Jonah wasn't being well, Jonah wasn't backsliding. Jonah was trying to look at it and say, well, God has made these promises, but he did what so many of us do, try to help out his way. Thinking, but God, that doesn't make sense to do that. Abraham did it. So many others through the Bible did it. Moses is guilty of it. And so on. You know, in our own lives, there are countless times where we try and help God out. Never goes well. But the reason we do it is because in the current situation, the circumstances, 
We don't know what else to do. And we're not very good at just sitting and trusting. And sometimes that turmoil just gets so much that we have to do something just to help God a little bit, to push this thing on. God is in complete control. And we need to learn the lesson, one of the lessons that Jonah, the book of Jonah teaches us, which is to trust God. You see, there's this, we'll talk about it at the end, but there's a, a lovely picture that's painted because of the situation with Jonah and what Jonah ends up doing. You see, God is not slack concerning judgment. We know that. And God always warns before judgment. And in a sense, God would eventually judge the Assyrians. And though they repented, Jonah going and warning them was in a sense God's way of letting them know the judgment would come if they carried on in disobedience. Now, initially they repented, but then Assyria did go back to their old ways. And that's why eventually judgment came. But Assyria will never be able to stand before God as a a nation and the kings of Assyria and say, well, we didn't know. Nobody told us that you were going to judge us. Yet Jonah came. So it was important that that message came. And although they repented at that time, God still had this. You see, their cry of the cry of their wickedness had come before God. And as a result of their initial humility and repentance, judgment was postponed, but postponed, note, for approximately 200 years. Nineveh, Nineveh was eventually uh, overthrown by Babylon in about 612 BC, uh, the Battle of Karshemesh, uh, and so on. And the book of Nahum, which we'll get to as we carry on in our journey through the Minor Prophets, if the Lord doesn't come back first, and we'll prophesy the destruction. But you see, God, we also see here, extending mercy to Gentiles. And aren't we grateful for that? Every single one of us this morning is here because God has extended his mercy to the Gentiles. So we must trust God. God sees the end from the beginning. His ways are above our ways. He knows the things that we don't know. Oswald Chambers made this comment, which I used to love. Let me read it to you. The idea is not that we do work for God, but that we are so loyal to him that he can do his work through us. I reckon on you for extreme service, with no complaining on your part, and no explanation of mine. God wants to use us as he used his own son. I'm halfway there. I'm on the no explanation on God's part, but I'm not very good on the no complaining on mine bit. And truthfully, most of us are the same, but that's how God wants us to be. Just to trust him that much. That we don't need an explanation. And that we don't complain. We just accept that we are his, that he's bought us with a price, he loves us. And, and the, uh, one of the commentaries I was reading this week was talking about trials and difficulties, and sometimes in those trials we kind of, oh Lord, you know, you've forgotten me, or do you love me? And he said, always go back to the blood of Christ, the cross. That's how much God loves you. There's no question of God's love for you. So let's jump straight into chapter one then, the reluctant prophet. Now the word of the Lord came unto Jonah the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city. And cry against it, for their wickedness is come up before me. 
Let's have a quick, just talk about Nineveh for a second. So it was kind of the capital of the Assyrian Empire at that time. You can see there the, the extent of the Assyrian Empire. And it kind of totally eclipsed Israel, both northern and southern kingdoms. Just Israel, just over here, this, this tiny little strip of land on the edge here at the time was all they had. Nineveh was this mighty, mighty empire that was growing and building. At the time of Jonah, the city was 14 miles across. They had 100-foot walls around the city, pretty intimidating. There were 1,500 towers, and each of the towers were 200 feet tall around the city. I mean, this really would have been something to see. There were 15 gates around the city, five of which have now been unearthed through archaeology. Of course, many skeptics thought Nineveh was just a mythological city like Atlantis and so on. And so we get to the 19th century when Arabs discovered some of the ancient ruins. In 1820, Nineveh was mapped by the British archaeologist Claudus J. Rich. And then in 1847, young British adventurer Sir Austin Henry Layard explored the ruins and found the lost palace of Shenekareb. And of course, that then silences the critics. It proved once again that the Bible is accurate in regard to the details it gives and locations and the history. The Bible is very much a book of history. And of course, today we've got the remains of Nineveh. Now, the remains tell a story. They tell the fact that it's been destroyed. And of course, that's what Nahum prophesied. That again is in accord with what the Bible says. But even today, you can go on Google Maps or Google Earth, whatever, you can see um, from the air, the remains, you've got Nineveh, the, the kind of center of the city. You can see some of the gates are um, pointed out there. Uh, the walls of ancient, ancient Nineveh have been uncovered and so on. And uh, even now you can still see, you zoom in, you can actually start to see the walls there. And this is one of the old gates. So no question, again, the historicity of all of these things. And of course, excavations took place in Nineveh. They found the great palace of Shnekareb and so on. Uh, again, these characters the Bible speaks about. Now, if you go on to BritishMuseum.org uh, and look for Assyria, there's lots on there uh, about Nineveh. And of course, you can go to the British Museum. Uh, and it speaks about this in room nine at the British Museum. Uh, and again, if, you, if you've never done this, it's worth, it's worth doing. If you've got on your computer and you go onto uh, Google or even to the British Museum website, you can actually do, you know, you do the Google Street View. You can go around the streets and see where people live. No, don't do that. Um, but you can go to the British Museum and actually go around the British Museum. It was fantastic. So you don't even have to go to London to see it. I mean, it's not quite like being there, but it's still good. Um, in one of the jobs I had, some years ago, our office was just literally uh, a road uh, along from the British Museum. So every lunchtime, I used to go around the British Museum and just find all these wonderful things that confirm what the Bible said. But in the Assyria, there's lots of records of these uh, things that were found in Assyria, in Nineveh, and brought back to this country and are now on display, including these winged creatures, these god-type creatures. He's part god, part man, part winged things. Uh, it's interesting because Genesis 6 talks about beings that came down from heaven with wings. We know the angels have wings. We're told that in Scripture. And then their offspring were the giants of which there is so much folklore and legend and so much recorded in Scripture. And it's interesting that most of the ancient cultures have some sort of mythology about these beings that came down from heaven. Fascinating. It just confirms the biblical narrative. 
There's a whole wall full of the reliefs, these kind of carvings that have come from these places in Assyria, and particularly in Nineveh. And you can go and you can see all these things there. And they depict various scenes and various events and battles that took place and so on. <coughs> Including, they've got statues there and carvings of the god the, the Ninevites worshipped, the Assyrians worshipped. And it was the same God, interestingly, that the Philistines worshipped. It was the god Dagon. Dagon was the fish god. And you can see in the picture there, if you look at the the headdress, you can see kind of the scales on the headdress on this uh, carving. Interesting, just stop and think about that for a minute. Jonah is the one that God calls. God goes in from the He knew that Jonah was going to run. And he knew the method that he was going to use to get Jonah back. God could have done anything, you know, to get Jonah back there. God could have simply refused him access to the ship when he got down to Joppa. But he lets him get on the ship. Why? Because he knows what was going to happen. And he, of course, ends up getting swallowed by a fish. Well, that had been a tale to tell when he got back to shore, of course. And then he arrives at Nineveh, and quite probably the account had gone beforehand. People would have heard of this bizarre situation. I mean, the people on the ship were traders. They they threw their merchandise and stuff overboard. When they got back to port, they would have told the story. And so this man has been swallowed by a fish, and who's now still alive, arrives in a city where they worship the fish god. Okay, interesting. I found that online, and I'm not saying anything other than that's quite interesting, isn't it? A bit fishy, I thought. You see a lot of parallels with some of the things the Catholic Church do and other pagan religions and so on. I thought that was quite interesting too. I don't want to put you off coffee. It won't put me off coffee, but it might put me off drinking Starbucks. The symbol they use on their little logo is drawn from the fish god. Interesting. So again, he's told to go to Nineveh for their wickedness is come up before me. See, God requires an account. That's what we're told in Ecclesiastes 3.15. Now, for us as believers, that's dealt with by Jesus Christ. But for the world, they will one day be judged according to the works, the things they've done, things they've said, things they've thought. And God requires an account, and God saw what was going on. There's a number of occasions we find this with Sodom and Gomorrah. We see it as well. Before the flood, we see it. God is watching. God will only allow things to get to a certain point. God, of course, is not mocked. Galatians 6 verse 7 tells us. You know, don't mistake God's mercy. God is long-suffering. Don't mistake that for his approval. Don't mistake that for God being not interested. Oh, God is acutely aware of what's going on in this country right now. In our lives right now. Now, we know the Assyrians were cruel and barbaric. They carried captives away with nose hooks, and they used to sew the captives together so you couldn't escape. They were well known historically for their violence, and of course God had seen all of this wickedness. Verse 3, we carry on. But Jonah rose up to flee unto Tarshish from the presence of the Lord and went down to Joppa, and he found a ship going to Tarshish, so he paid the fare thereof and went down into it, to go with them unto Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. James Kennedy makes his comment. He says, you cannot say no, Lord, and mean both words. One annuls the other. If you say no to him, 
then he's not your Lord. Quite like that. Just so we get this geographically, <coughs> Gath Hefer is where Jonah is from. That's where he lived in the region of Zebulun. Joppa, completely the wrong direction if you were making a trip to Nineveh. It's directly the other way. So he goes down to this seaport, Joppa, even today now known as Jaffa, um, which is, again, given its names of the fruit that's exported, the oranges that are exported from Israel. But this seaport, which is the only real seaport Israel have, is now very uh, industrialized, very built up, and so on. You see there, all the fishing boats, even to this day. Psalm 139 Verses 7 through 10 remind us in a sense of the folly of Jonah and the folly of ourselves. Where shall I go from my spirit or where shall I flee from my presence? If I ascend up into heaven, thou art there. If I make my bed in hell, behold, thou art there. Interesting. Even God's presence can be felt in hell. Now, that's not the eternal lake of fire, That is the horror of the lake of fire, the eternal hell, that God's presence will not be there. But in Hades, the place where the departed go, the dead go, that's up until the time of the cross, even there God's presence could be felt. It was like a waiting room, waiting for the final judgment. Verse 9, if I take the wings of the morning, I dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea. That's kind of what Jonah was trying to do here, wasn't it? Even there shall thy hand lead me, and thy right hand shall hold me. So, Tarshish, just a, a few comments. It's not really that important, but I throw it in there because I just think it's interesting, and I'll tell you why I think it's significant. We know from Isaiah 66 that Tarshish was afar off. It's a long way away. It wasn't near Israel. We know from First Kings it was a three-year round trip. Just about a year and a half, typically. Now, that may well be stopping en route other places to get there, but a trip to Tarshish and back would take about three years. We also know from Herodotus, the Greek historian, that it was beyond the Pillars of Hercules. If you're not sure what the Pillars of Hercules are, they were the mountains or the hills that adorned the Straits of Gibraltar. So the one in North Africa and the other one at Gibraltar itself. Really, southern Spain, the top of Africa, the land comes in very close. It's very narrow, relatively. And either side, you have these two kind of peaks, and they were known as the Pillars of Hercules. So Herodotus says that, that Tarshish was beyond that point. So a number of commentators say that it was various places within the, the Mediterranean. I don't think so, not from that reference. So we know he went as far, at least as that point, but I suspect the Tarshish was actually the British Isles, this country. For a number of reasons. Firstly, Tarshish, we know, was a source of tin from Ezekiel 27, verse 12. And Herodotus, as early as 445 BC, speaks of the British Isles as the tin isles. Just looking online last night, and I found some interesting articles, but commenting that this country, they've now found, going back even to 3,600 years ago, which kind of puts us in this kind of time frame, and before, was still trading with Europe. And, of course, therefore, by extension, the Middle East. So we know that trade was going on. And, of course, down in Cornwall, there were there still are the remains of the tin mines that were down there. 
Why this is interesting is because in Ezekiel 38, it just speaks of a battle that is yet to happen with Israel and the surrounding nations. And it seems to be a Russian-led Islamic invasion of Israel. And we read, picking up verse 11, And thou shalt say, I will go up to the land of unwalled villages. It's speaking of Israel dwelling in peace. They haven't got walls, don't need walls. They're in a kind of sense of peace and safety. It says, I will go to them that are at rest, that dwell safely, all of them dwelling without walls and having neither bars nor gates, to take a spoil, to take a prey, to turn thine hand upon the desolate places that are now inhabited. See, notice that in Israel, it was once desolate, it's now inhabited again, they're now back in the land. Uh, upon the people that are gathered out of the nations, Israel back in the land, which have gotten cattle and goods that dwell in the midst of the land. And this is the interesting thing, that whilst this invading army is doing that, Sheba and Dedan, which is Saudi Arabia to you and I, and the merchants of Tarshish, which I believe is the reference for this country, with all the young lions thereof. Now, how interesting that is. I mean, we're familiar with the whole three lions on our shirt thing. The young lions. So Tarshish with the young lions. It would imply that Tarshish is responsible for producing these young lions. Well, how many nations have come from this country? You think of Australia. A lot of the inhabitants of Australia came from this country. A lot of those in America came from this country. What it's saying is that whilst this invading army is coming against Israel... Tarshish, or Saudi Arabia, Tarshish, and clearly the young lions, those connected, are going to look on. It says, they, uh, therefore say unto thee, Art thou come to take a spoil? Has thou gathered thy company to take a prey, to carry away silver and gold, to take cattle and goods, to take a great spoil? In other words, they look on from a distance, but they don't do anything. What's interesting is that all the nations that are mentioned here, if they are indeed what we're saying, Saudi Arabia, the UK, Australia, America, maybe Canada involved, they're all typically allies in times of conflict. How interesting that they just sit back and they let this invading army come against Israel. Now, Israel will be victorious. But I just throw that in. I just think it's interesting. doesn't prove anything, but, uh, you know, if you have a different view of where Tarshish is, fine. But uh, it just seems, from those references, uh, quite probable. Anyway, verse 4. But the Lord sent out a great wind into the sea, and there was a mighty tempest in the sea, so that the ship was like to be broken. Then the mariners were afraid. Notice that. They were afraid. We all would be, I think, in that situation. And cried every man unto his God. Notice that. They cry to their God. You know, it's been said that there's no atheists in a storm. Um, And they cried every man unto his God and cast forth uh, the wares that were in the ship. So all their merchandise, all the things they had on board that they were taking on this journey with them, they start throwing it overboard to lighten the load, uh, to lighten them. But Jonah was gone down into the sides of the ship. And he lay and was fast asleep. Notice they were afraid. And notice also polytheistic. Many gods. Every man cried unto his God. They all had different gods. And they all start crying to their gods as if any of their gods might be able to help them in this predicament they're in. So the shipmaster came to him, to Jonah, and said unto him, What meanest thou, O sleeper? Arise, call upon thy God. You know, we're all calling on our gods. Do you ever go? It's a crazy situation. If so be, that God will think upon us that we perish not. And they said, everyone to his fellow, come, let us cast lots that we may know for whose cause this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots and the lot fell upon Jonah. Now, we find a number of examples in Scripture that the Lord allows this to work, that a lot is chosen, you know, literally drawing straws, that type of thing. The lot is cast into that, but the whole disposing thereof is of the Lord, Proverbs 16.33 tells us. 
the city's done. And of course, Jonah then gets the short straw. straw. So they realize that Jonah is the cause of this problem. Well, that's what they deduce. And they say unto him, tell us, we pray thee, for whose cause this evil is come upon us? What is thine occupation? And whence comest thou? What is thy country? And of what people art thou? Well, they're questions we'd rather not answer sometimes, aren't they? You know, the world does that to us sometimes. They, they ask us questions. You know, do we truly represent our God? You see, up until this point, they had no idea that he was a servant of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You know, everyone at Joppa, they'd got on board this boat to, to go, the, the crew and everything else. And Jonah's got on board. They didn't know anything about him. But now they're asking, who are you? What is it you do? Why has this come upon you? This, what is the situation? What, what country do you come from? You know, do we ever get caught doing things that are not consistent with our profession? You know, one of the most hurtful things for a Christian to hear is from somebody in the world to say, oh, you're a Christian, aren't you? I didn't think you'd do that. But it happens. There are times that we get caught out. There are times we say something that we shouldn't have said or in a way that we shouldn't have said it. Or maybe we're caught in a place or situation that normally we wouldn't be. And somebody says, oh, I thought you were a Christian. You know, we shouldn't put ourselves in those positions. Paul says we should give no appearance of evil. There are things that may not be wrong, but they may not be helpful. They may not be glorifying to God. We need to think about where we go, what we do, what we watch, what we say. People see. Your neighbors see. When the world reminds us who we are, we need to take stock of. In 2 Corinthians 13, verse 5, Paul said on this line, he said, examine yourselves. Whether you be in the faith, prove your own selves. Know you not your own selves, how that Jesus Christ is in you, except you be reprobates. Paul's saying, do a health check on your life spiritually. Ask yourself those questions. Where are you from? Whose people are you? Who do you belong to? Who is your God? Mark 8, 28. Jesus said, Whosoever therefore shall be ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him also shall the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. And I've said. Verse 9, And he said unto them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord. Now, kind of see a bit of irony here, because he's kind of not said to anybody that he fears God, and he's running away from God, and he says, I, I, I fear God. The God of heaven, and this is going to be the bit that really kind of concerns these people that are listening, these, this crew of the ship. The God of heaven, which has made the sea and the dry land. Now, I love this because Jonah preaches a creation message at this point. He tells them, I serve the God that made everything. And we read verse 10, Then were the men exceedingly afraid, and said unto him, Why hast thou done this? Now, again, notice that they were, initially they were afraid of the storm and the waves. Now they're exceedingly afraid. You see, the God of Israel was well known. He was the God that led Israel out of Egypt through the Red Sea that had given Israel the land of Canaan and defeated the inhabitants of the land. And, of course, then David and Solomon's fame was well known. And so he says, I'm a Hebrew. I'm, I'm one of them. And so they're concerned. And so they asked Jonah, you know, why hast thou done this? For the men knew that he fled from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. And Jonah said, uh, in his best Hebrew accent, you know, give me some time to sink. And they obviously misunderstood what he said, and they get ready to throw him overboard so he could... Never mind. 
Then they said unto him, What shall we do unto thee that the sea may be calm unto us? For the sea wrought and was tempestuous. And he said unto them, Take me up and cast me forth into the sea, so shall the sea be calm unto you. For I know that for my sake this great tempest is upon you. Jonah volunteers to be thrown into the sea. Now, just think about this for a second. You know, he's aware that he's been found out. He could have just got on his knees, repented, and said, Lord, I'll be obedient. But he doesn't. He doesn't want to do that. He doesn't want to go back because he doesn't want to go to Nineveh. He doesn't want to preach to them because he doesn't want them to repent because if they do, he knows that they will destroy Israel. Is it a, a noble act? Well, just think about this for a second. See, Jonah assumes he's going to die, and he assumes that that is going to be the end of the matter. He's still running away. And if he's thrown into the sea at this point, hopefully that's going to relieve him of his obligation. Nobody goes to Nineveh. Israel's safe. I believe that this is an act of sacrificial love on Jonah's part for his people whom he loved and did not want to see be destroyed by the Assyrians. But of course, God won't let Jonah get away. That was Jonah's take on the situation. But we've already said that God's plan was bigger. Nevertheless, the men rode hard to bring it to the land, but they could not, for the sea roared and was tempestuous against them. Wherefore, they cried unto the Lord and said, Now, notice that. They cried unto their gods. No, not their gods. And cried unto the Lord. There's been a real change take place in these people's lives. They've realized that Jonah's been chosen. The reason they're in this predicament, he was running away from God. He's the God that made everything. Jonah's just preached to them effectively. And now they cry out to the Lord and said, We beseech thee, O Lord, we beseech thee. Notice it's stated twice. We beseech thee, O Lord, we beseech thee. Not any other God. No other God can help us. Only you can help us. Let us not perish for this man's life and lay not upon us innocent blood. For thou, O Lord, has done as it pleased thee. They're breaking into worship here. There's a real transformation. It's interesting, isn't it? So they took Jonah and cast him forth into the sea, and the sea ceased from her raging. There's a number of these kind of moments on the Sea of Galilee after the storm and you know jesus speaks and the, suddenly the, the the waves and the the storm just stop instantly and suddenly the sea ceases from her raging and notice again what verse 16 says the, then the men feared the lord exceedingly and offered a sacrifice unto the lord and made vows okay that's as close as you're going to get to they were converted they were now following the god of jonah Again, afraid, exceedingly afraid, and they feared the Lord. The Lord had led these men. You see, even Jonah's rebellion had produced fruit. These men went home, changed. And you know, the Bible, Jesus says in John 14, 15, 16, and so on, that we are to bear fruit. You know, if we are connected to Jesus, then we're going to bear fruit. Every branch in me that bears fruit or that doesn't bear fruit will get pruned that it can bear more fruit. And God does that. Sometimes, even in our disobedience, God can work through those things to bring glory to his own name. And as a, the result of the situation, these sailors are saved. Now the Lord had prepared a great fish to swallow up Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. 
Notice the Lord had prepared. And there's a lot of questions about a fish or a whale. By the way, this is completely missing the point, but let's just go through it. The Hebrew word is dog, however you pronounce that. Uh, and this is a fish in a sense of um, a squirming that is moving by the vibratory action of the tail. That's what the um, commentaries say. So, you know, in a sense, it could be either a fish or a whale. The, generally, the Hebrew um, commentators speak of a fish. Okay, and although in the New Testament sometimes it's translated well, it really is not a big deal. Um, again, the Greek word is katos. Um, it's either a huge fish or a whale. It's a big thing that swims in the sea. All right, that's really all we need to know. Um, and again, the thing is, God prepared it. All right, so we don't need to worry too much about what it was or or whatever. Is it possible? Well, this is another question that's asked, and of course, critics will challenge it, say it couldn't happen, and so on. But remember, it's a miracle. God has prepared it. And by the way, if God created the heavens and the earth, and you believe Genesis 1-1, then really the rest of it's not a problem. God could do whatever he wants. He created everything. You know, in the Garden of Eden, God formed out of the ground everything and brought it before Adam after he created it all. God creates all the creatures in Genesis 1. And then in the garden, God forms out of the ground in front of Adam all the creatures again. Why? To show Adam that he's creator. There's not a contradiction between Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, as some people try and say. God does this incredible work in the garden and forms the creatures out of the ground, brings them to Adam, so he sees them being created before his very eyes. Now, God can do whatever he wants, and God prepares this fish specifically. But just for the, for the sake of it, if you look at the size of a man compared to the size of, for example, a blue whale, no problem. That man would fit inside that big fish stroke whale, Okay. Chuck Misler, in his commentary, highlights that in 1891, James Bartley, who uh, was a whaler on a whale ship, the Star of the East, near the Falkland Islands, uh, and he got lost, fell overboard whilst they were chasing a sperm whale. The crew caught and killed the whale, and they found Bartley inside. He was unconscious but alive. He recovered in about three weeks and resumed his duties. Apparently, his skin had been bleached white like parchment. There was also another English sailor, uh, a separate incident, who fell overboard and was swallowed by a fish. Um, again, a day or two later, the fish was seen floating on the surface of the water. It was taken ashore. It was opened up. The sailors found their shipmate alive. Uh, he survived the experience, but his skin had turned this kind of chalky white and remained so for the rest of his life, bleached, apparently. Uh, and this uh, Harry Rimmer, in his book, The Harmony and Science of the Scripture, uh, alludes to this and the fact that he actually spoke to this individual. So... There you go. If possible. But you know what? God can do what he wants anyway. So that doesn't really, you know, if, you, if you're caught up on that, then you're missing the bigger picture. Again, the Lord prepared a great fish. And notice the real key here. Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. This is so significant. In Matthew 12, we read verse 38. Then certain of the scribes and of the Pharisees answered, saying, Master, we would see a sign from thee. But he answered and said unto them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign, and there shall no sign be given to it but the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the whale's belly, so shall the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Notice there's a direct comparison. So shall, in the same way, the Son of Man is going to be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Now there's a clue there of what actually is going to happen to Jonah. We'll come to that in a moment. There's only eight words of prophecy, by the way, in the whole book of Jonah. And yet Jesus refers to him as the prophet Jonah. Now, evidently, Jonah prophesied more. We see the evidence of that in 2 Kings 14.25. 
We read there, he, it's Jeroboam, restored the coast of Israel from the entering of Hamath unto the sea of the plain, according to the word of the Lord, uh, according to the word of the Lord God of Israel, which he spoke by the hand of his servant Jonah, the son of Amittai, the prophet, which was of Gath Hepha. So just a reference that Jonah prophesied other things that we don't have recorded in Scripture. But what was Jonah's greatest prophecy? Well, surely it's this, that Jesus is pointed to, as, or Jesus points to Jonah's death and resurrection experience as a prophetic model of what he would accomplish, specifically being in the heart of the earth for three days and three nights. Luke 18, we read verse 31, Then he took unto him the twelve and said unto them, Behold, we go up to Jerusalem, and all things that are written by the prophets concerning the Son of Man shall be accomplished. That includes Jonah's words. That includes Jonah's life. It includes the book of Jonah, this model that we have given to us. Jesus himself says that all the things that were written by the prophets concerning the Son of Man shall be accomplished. It includes that Jesus would be three days, three nights in the heart of the earth. For he shall be delivered unto the Gentiles and shall be mocked and spitefully entreated and spitted on. And they shall scourge him and put him to death. And the third day, notice, he shall rise again. No question that Jesus rose on the third day. Now, just because we're here, let me just take you through this. The children aren't here, so you're going to have to do a little bit of this yourself. Uh, so by all means, call out if you want to. Uh, we know that Jesus rose on the third day. That's very clear from Scripture. Before the third day, anybody want to guess what the day was? Before the third day, we'd have anybody? Second day, very, very good. Before the second day, we'd have first day, okay? And before the first day, this is tricky. Well, effectively, we're going to have day zero, aren't we? Because it's, that's where it starts. Otherwise, the first day is not the first day. The first day has to be after day zero. Otherwise, it's the second. Anyway, you get me? Right. We know the resurrection occurred on the third day. That means the crucifixion occurred on day zero. The resurrection was the first day of the week. Okay, that was a Sunday. That means the day before that was a Saturday. That means the day before that was a Friday. The day before that would be Thursday. We've all been brought up with this tradition that says that Jesus was crucified on Good Friday. There's no biblical support for that whatsoever. And I've read all sorts of commentaries and books by people that try and explain how it happened, how you can shoehorn these three days and three nights from Friday to Sunday. It doesn't work. No wonder some of the critics look at it and laugh. Well, if we go with what the Bible says, it really isn't a problem. And actually, there's about eight or nine different pointers that fix Thursday as the only day possible for the crucifixion. The resurrection on the third day, as we said, which was a Sunday. We planned the whole that. It means, that, as we said, the crucifixion is on the Thursday. So we have the Thursday evening. And remember, and you see the color coding here, the Jewish day begins in the evening. Okay, but for our purposes, the first night becomes the Thursday night. And then we have the Friday during the day. That's the first day. Then we have the Friday night, which is the second night. We then have the Saturday, which is the second day. We have the Saturday night, which is now our third night. And we have the Sunday, which is our third day. It's really easy. Three days, three nights. No contradiction, no problem. The other things that are interesting here is, of course, that on the Sunday, which is one of the few things that tradition does get right, that it was Palm Sunday as we refer to it, it was a triumphal entry. And why is that significant? Well, because in AD 32, on that particular Sunday, it was exactly 173,880 days from a command to restore and build Jerusalem that had been given by Artaxerxes Longimanus, prophesied by Daniel in Daniel chapter 9, 
Daniel is given this incredible prophecy by Gabriel. He's given the starting point, the exact time frame, 483 years, but specifically it's 173,880 days. And to the day is the triumphal entry. It's the only day Jesus presents himself as king to Israel. For the rest of his ministry, he wouldn't allow people to talk of him being a king or say who he was. When he did miracles, he said, see, they'll tell no man until this very day. And he says to his disciples, now my time has come. And Jesus presents himself as the king and rides into Jerusalem on the donkey, as kings would do in a time of peace. Interestingly, of course, the 14th would be the Feast of Passover. But because the Jewish day starts in the evening, the 14th actually begins in what we would think of as the Wednesday evening. So Jesus was able to celebrate the Passover with his disciples and still be the Passover lamb slain for us. The next day was the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which was a Sabbath, a high Sabbath. No work was permitted, which is why the ladies couldn't go to the tomb that day. Of course, the Saturdays are regular Sabbath, so again, no work was permitted. So they go as early as they can, which happens to be on the Feast of First Fruits. Now, interestingly, Paul says in 1 Corinthians, Moreover, brethren, I declare unto you the gospel. This is the gospel. This is what Paul says the gospel is. That Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. Christ died on the Feast of Passover according to the scriptures, Exodus chapter 12 and many other scriptures. And then he was buried... He was buried as it becomes the 15th in the Jewish mindset. It becomes the next day. And then he rose again the third day on the Feast of First Fruits, according to the Scriptures. All these feasts pointing forward to what Jesus would accomplish. Of course, the book of Jonah itself, a model of these three days and these three nights. The miracles we see in chapter 1, the storm, the lot falling on Jonah, the repentance of the crew, the fish that God prepared, and the calming of the storm. Bear with me, there's just 10 short verses in this chapter, and we'll set ourselves up for next week. Then Jonah prayed unto the Lord, his God, out of the fish's belly, and said, I cried by reason of my affliction unto the Lord, and he heard me. Out of the belly of hell. Interesting statement, isn't it? By the way, notice it's then. Sometimes we have to get to these points before we cry out to God. And he cried, out of the belly of hell I cried, and thou heard my voice. You see, God can even hear when that distance is there. For thou has caused me, uh, sorry, for thou has cast me into the deep in the midst of the seas, and the floods compassed me about. All thy billows and thy waves passed over me. Again, it's in that affliction. And sometimes the Lord allows that for his purposes in our lives to bring us to that place of realizing that he is God, he is in control, he's in charge. But notice that God heard. I've never yet cried out to God and he's not answered. Doesn't always answer immediately or in the way I want, but he always answers. Then I said, I am cast out of thy sight, yet will I look again toward thy holy temple. See, even here, Jonah's not given up on God. He's not turned his back on God and said, I don't care for you anymore. It's not a, you know, Job's wife's curse God and die kind of thing. Job is saying, even now I'm going to look toward thy holy temple. As Solomon had said, you know, when you're in a predicament, turn toward the temple and pray. The waters compassed me about, even to the soul. The depth closed me round about. The weeds were wrapped about my head. No doubt everything that this 
fish had swallowed all inside the fish and he's getting caught up in all this stuff. But then he says, verse 6, I went down to the bottoms of the mountains. The earth with her bars was about me forever. Now, just the pressure at that depth makes it unlikely that Jonah survived the experience. Yet has thou brought up my life from corruption. Now that's significant because that's exactly the expression that's used of Jesus, that thou will not allow thy Holy One to see corruption, to remain in that place. His body wasn't going to decay like other people that have died and been buried. And Jonah here uses this expression, I believe that Jonah actually died. And that's why this is a model of the death and the resurrection of Jesus. And although through Jonah's disobedience, he's in his predicament, God uses this to establish this incredible model. He says, oh Lord, my God. Just consider the downward spiral. Jonah goes down to Joppa to start with. Down into the sides of the ship. Down into the sea. Down in the fish. Down to the bottom of the mountains. Down to corruption. And he cries out to God. That's as low as it can go. It doesn't get any, any lower than that. You know, we may be at various points on that journey. We may think we're at the bottom. There's a great line, a song by Stephen Curtis Chapman. It says, when you think you've hit the bottom and the bottom gives way. Some of you can relate to that. But, you know, we have a great quote from Deuteronomy. Underneath are the everlasting arms. When you get to the bottom, you'll find God. And then the upward journey. He comes up from corruption. He lifts his prayer up to the Lord. He lifts his voice up in thanksgiving. He comes up out of the fish. Well, it'd be a pleasant thought as you get ready for Sunday lunch, but you know, this is what it is. And he finally goes up to Nineveh. When my soul fainted within me, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came in unto thee, into thy holy temple. They that observe lying vanities forsake their own mercy. You know, I suspect in saying that, Jonah is thinking of the Ninevites. They observed lying vanities. They observed these false gods. And he's thinking, you know what? Because they're worshipping false gods, they forsake their own mercy. And it's almost like I, I detect at this point, Jonah's heart changes. And he comes to that place of going, okay, Lord, I will trust you. We still don't quite get to the conclusion, because we'll see that in chapter 4, that even when he's there, he's still thinking, well, maybe God will destroy them. Verse 9, But I will sacrifice unto thee with the voice of thanksgiving. I will pay that that I have vowed. And then he says this incredibly important statement, Salvation is of the Lord. There is, of course, salvation in no other name. And then the final verse of the chapter, and the Lord spoke unto the fish, and it vomited out Jonah upon the dry land. We'll continue next time. But again, we see Jonah as a model or a type of Christ here. Jonah will get, of course, to Nineveh, and then we get to the biggest revival in history. And, of course, Jonah's going to get all grumpy again. But just think of this, that Jonah, as a model or a type of Christ, he gave his life to save his people. That's what he did. That's why he was on the boat. That's why he got thrown in the sea. He gave his life to save his people. But his people's rebellion against God brought the judgment upon them, upon Israel. So Jonah actually ends up going with his message of salvation to the Gentiles. And then we get this incredible revival that takes place. 
there's a message in there of what God has done through history. Let's bow our hearts. Father, we just thank you for the lessons that we read in this all so familiar book, and yet, Lord, many of these things we need to be reminded time and time again. Lord, the first thing we ask is you help us to trust you. Lord, whatever you ask of us, however strange it seems, however bizarre, however not in accord with what we think you want, it may seem to us. Lord, because it's you who ask, help us to trust you and to follow you, to be obedient. Father, help us to be uh, an example to those around us. May our light shine. May we not hide it from those around us. But Lord, may we be bold and proud to say that we love Jesus, that we love our God. Father, please have mercy upon this land that is so desperately in need of hearing the gospel and of repenting. Lord, we pray by your grace you would continue to strengthen and lead your people. Lead us. We ask this morning in Jesus' name. Amen.